0: Let's pray one more time before we begin. Well, Father, in an exercise of self-examination first, Lord, I pray uh, for you to help me and give me the words to speak and give me unction, and Lord, help me to rightly esteem your word and to reflect upon the truths that are in this scripture as so much of this Pertains specifically to the role of the pastor. And so, Father, we pray that you would do that work, uh, Lynn and I, both in our hearts, Lord, that you would examine us, that you would uh, try us, that you would purify us, and that you would sanctify us, consecrate us, and set us apart for your work. And Lord, I pray for your people today that you would help them to hear your word, to listen to your word, to follow your word. Give them minds that are Berean-like, that they would receive with all readiness Your Word to be ready, to be acute, to be thoughtful, to be meditative, Lord, to minimize distractions and to press in to Your truth. So, God, we pray that You would, by Your Spirit and in Your Word, that You would convict us today, that You would... Just transform us and do that continual work in our lives, that progressive work in our lives that we desperately need, Lord, that is to be conformed more and more into the glorious image of Your Son. Use these precious truths that lay before us today to accomplish that work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we have been looking at different principles of pastoral ministry and I do this with great delight because in a selfish way I get to study pastoral theology and I'm a pastor so I'm excited about that. And so the the trick, of course, is to try to hook you in to these messages so that you don't check out because, well, I'm not a pastor and this doesn't pertain to me. I think if you go to our church, you know better than that. Uh, but I really hope that these principles that Paul gives us even here will uh, be encouraging to you. And, you know, it reminds us that ministry is not a snap. Uh, it's not automatic. The principles, the character, uh, the virtues that are laid out here before us, they don't happen automatically. These things take work and they take determination. And so what I want to title this sermon now is we've looked at various um, a point so far in terms of ministering with purity and other things. Now we look at ministry with principle. We can call ministering with principle. Because that's what it's going to take in order for us to have the same standards, the same resolution, the same determination, and the same characteristics that Paul is laying out here before us. As a matter of fact, there are four that I identified from this text, from these two verses, verses 5 and six. And the first one is this. These are simple principles not to be undermined and not to be overlooked in terms of their potency. Number one, ministering with principle demands that we speak truthfully. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4, if you would, in your Bibles In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15, uh, the Apostle Paul lays over the entire congregation one simple principle, and it's this. Speak the truth in love. You see, because so much of our Christian life consists of speech, of talking, of communication with one another. Jump down to Verse 29, so I can show you how extensive this really is. Uh, Our fellowship consists of words that we speak to one another, hopefully with the goal and the aim ultimately to edify each other. Look at what he says in verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment. Uh, So much for the cussing Christian circles. In evangelicalism, it seems like Paul had zero tolerance for that. So that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Isn't that amazing? All these amazing Christian graces, all of these Christian virtues. As we dispense love and kindness and forgiveness to one another, speech has everything to do with how we do that. And therefore, the Apostle Paul first sort of eliminates the possibility or even the thought that he would come to them with some sort of sinful, uh, uh, what we can call false speech. Namely, flattery. Because look at what he says. We never came with flattering speech. Uh, flattery speech in the Bible, what's interesting is that in the New Testament, this word flattery or flattering is only used right here in this verse in the entire New Testament. It's not used again. However, the idea of flattery is extensively brought out in the Bible, and every time that it's mentioned in Scripture, it is negative. In other words, it is condemned. It is the type of speech that, uh, that is not fitting for the righteous, for the wise man, for the man of God, for the woman of God, for the person professing godliness. Flattery is just not part of our um, repertoire, if you would. What does it mean to flatter? Well, the Greek word here, kalakaios, just means to gratify someone's vanity. <laughs> you see now why God doesn't want us to do it. Because he doesn't want a bunch of vain Christians puffing each other up in the church. And so what does he say in the Bible? Well, it's very simple. Psalm 12, verse 3. The Lord will cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that speaks great things. And there you see the connection between flattery and pride. It goes hand hand, hand in hand. In Psalm 5, verse 9, it says, There is nothing reliable in what the wicked say. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. In Job 32, verse 21, he says, Let me now be partial to no one, nor flatter any man. Wow. He says, or my creator, my maker, would take me away. Amazing. Proverbs 28, verse 23 he who rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with the tongue. See, flattery is false speech. It's ultimately sinful speech. It's, um, in this context, if you go back to Thessalonians, it's connected with the concept of greed. So maybe that reveals what Paul is ultimately renouncing, namely that he didn't use flattery of speech for the motivation of greed. I think that's the way it really works. Let me point out three things about flattery. Number one, flattery is false speech because it exaggerates good in others. And it dismisses sin in others. It overlooks what is evil and exaggerates what is good for for a false reason, for a false motive. And sometimes when you hear flattery, you're listening to someone that is unwilling either to be honest with people or confront error. Both of these things are deadly in ministry, by the way. Uh, Pastors cannot have this in their uh, pastoral ministry. It can't be part of their character. You can't go around exaggerating the good in others, and you definitely cannot go around overlooking sin and error in people's lives. Absolutely not. What does Paul tell us to do as preachers? 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, Be ready to what? In season now, preach the word rebuke. Correct. He says, exhort. And so... That's part. That's the opposite of being a flatterer. Secondly, flattery is just part of the overall sinister attempt to manipulate people. It's a way that you have. It's you know when he says we did not come with flattering speech, and then notice the, the next word that he says here. He says, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. That word pretext there is a word that means cloak. So in other words, uh, flattery was not part of the overall disguise of false motives that Paul would have had in the ministry. Absolutely not. Uh, The Apostle Paul was more than uh, willing and ready and able uh, to confront what was contrary to the gospel in these Thessalonians. We know that already because if you jump back to chapter 2, for example, in verse 9, he already calls them out and he actually reveals that he pointed out their idolatry because it says they themselves report about what kind of reputation or reception we had with you, how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. The Apostle Paul was not afraid to confront their error, their culture, whenever it contradicted the word of God. And as ministers of the new covenant, we cannot either. I'd say that ultimately flattery is hateful. Uh, When you flatter someone, you're actually being deceptive and therefore it is actually hating your brother or hating your sister because you are refusing to be truthful with them. Absolutely not. See, in ministry, the temptation is always to make things seem better than they are and always to lighten the blow of the things that are not right. Uh, It's always a, a pragmatic reason behind why you engage in flattery. And that's something that A pastor cannot afford to do. This is all part, uh, if you think about from the preaching perspective, this is all part of the seeker-sensitive model of doing ministry. You sort of go easy on sin. You don't really highlight or you don't really talk about sin and the lack of holiness. And you always make people feel as if the most important thing in the world is for their self-esteem to be up. Absolutely not. Not. You know, I like what John MacArthur once said. He said, Hard preaching produces soft people while soft preaching produces hard people. Don't miss that. What he's saying is that if you preach a soft message, if you're always there to tickle someone's ear, you will produce hardened people. Why? Because when they bump up against the truth, when they hear true conviction coming from the Word of God... They will be incapable of receiving it, and they will reject it ultimately. But it's when we preach, as he says, hard preaching, which all he means by that is being truthful, the opposite of flattery, the opposite of being deceptive, the opposite of being seeker-sensitive, when we are willing to simply say what God says, then we can rest assured that we are conditioning our people to receive the Word of God. That's exactly what the uh, Thessalonians did, and that's why he ultimately praised them. In chapter 2, verse 13, that's what he says, remember. This is a verse we've come to time and again. But he says, For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you heard, excuse me, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it as the, he says, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. Which performs its work in you who believe. What an incredible verse. I can't wait to get to that verse. That's for sure. But the Apostle Paul was simply unwilling to hold back. He was not looking to puff them up, he wasn't looking to tickle their ear, and so he did not engage in flattery. You know, in that time, there were. Plenty of people that would go around using flattering speech to try to gain a following. This was, this was uh, very, very common in, 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 in uh, the Greco-Roman world, especially among philosophers and rhetoricians that would go out in the public squares and they would, they would send out their message and they would use all this fancy rhetoric and they would flatter their hearers in hopes that they would gain a following from them. That's what I mean. It's pragmatic, uh, Sinclair Ferguson in his wonderful new book on pastoral theology. It's called Some Pastors and Teachers. Wonderful, wonderful book. I think what's probably the most wonderful thing about it, it's about 700 pages long. Finally, uh, I'm, these days, you know, the books they're pumping out, you know, 120 pages. Nice cover, <laughs> but pretty slim pickings as far as I'm concerned. 700 pages on uh, 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 pastoral theology. That's wonderful. Now listen to what he says here. He talks about John Newton. He says, John Newton wrote that his congregation would take almost anything from him, however painful, because they knew that he meant to do them good. See, that is a minister that is willing to speak the truth in love because the motives are right. The goal is good. Uh, Turn with me to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, Actually, 1 Timothy chapter 1. What a perfect verse for what we're talking about. The Apostle Paul says there in 1 Timothy 1.5, but the goal of our instruction, even in preaching, is what? Love. Love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's That's the bedrock of true biblical ministry, true biblical preaching, true instruction, true preaching is born out of that foundation right there. That the aim of all of it, when you hear Pastor Amelia or Pastor Lynn coming up here and renouncing sin and and speaking about holiness and and bringing conviction of this issue or that issue, by the grace of God, the goal of our instruction is love matter of fact, Paul will talk about his authority here in a minute. He told the Corinthians the authority that had been given to him was for their building up, not for their tearing down. And that has to be the ultimate motive. So much that we can say on that. I mean, we can go on and on just on that point of what does it mean to have excellent speech in the ministry to remove flattering lips from our mouths as ministers of the gospel. The second thing is this. Gives us another principle. Ministering with principle requires that we be indifferent to money. So go back to Thessalonians. He says, we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Now, I know that we have been exposed so often to just the absurdities of the prosperity gospel. Oh, that we have to put up with that stuff. You know, watch them on you know the television doing all the wild, crazy things, blowing people over over with their microphone, and you know waving their coats at people, and hundreds of people fall on the ground and whatnot. And all of it—it's a big ploy to just give me your money, give me your money, give me your money. Or they go on in some sort of you know uh, philosophical tone, just going on and on, and again, just tickling people's ears, giving them what they want to hear. And all of it is an aim to build up their self-esteem, and all of it is ultimately for money. That's it. And and you know what? We can we can sort of ca- uh, we can sort of uh, detail all the false doctrines of the prosperity movement, and there are so many, right? You know, don't they have like you know confetti falling from the rafters or something like that? What's that called? The dust, the gold dust. That's right. Gold dust and gold appearing in people's mouths and slaying you with the spirit and, you know, the, the theology of little gods and all this nonsense. It's really not that difficult to refute the prosperity movement. Are you ready? 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Do not associate with a swindler. Period. You know, case closed. I think I'm going to write a book. It'd be the thinnest book <laughs> on, on the issue because when that is the motivation you know that that person has a pretext for greed but paul says he had no pretext for greed he did not come with the love of money matter of fact in 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 3 the qualification of an elder is what that they be free from the love of money oh and I tell you what, it may not be as ridiculous or absurd or as obvious as what we would renounce, readily renounce, in the prosperity movement. It could be as subtle as the reason you're in ministry is because of the perks and the cushion that you get from ministry and what it can provide you, because it can give you a good living and a secure income. If that's the reason that you are in pastoral ministry, you have a pretext for greed, that can never be the reason don 't get me wrong it 's not that it 's not that the pastors should not be financially uh, remunerated or, or monetarily supported. Of course, uh, matter of fact, look over at uh, chapter five of this very letter because there 's a balance right? He talks about this in uh, chapter five verse twelve. he says, "But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you." in the lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work so he's not undermining the pastoral ministry and that verse right there is in league with many other verses like for example in peter when it talks about elders being worthy of double honor and and that is certainly talking about financially supporting your elders in galatians chapter 6 same thing those who who are taught ought to share every good thing with those that teach. There's a, there's a slew of passages on financially supporting your elders. But in the context that Paul is talking about here, he didn't go to the Thessalonians so that the Thessalonians could provide for him. That's not the dynamic. He always had their spiritual good in mind. Matter of fact, go to Galatians chapter 6 so that you can see the... Uh, no, no, I'm sorry, uh, Philippians. I'm just thinking of this verse now. Philippians chapter 4. This is crucial. This shows us the real dynamic behind what Paul's ministry was all about when it, when it relates to finances. Uh, for example, look at uh, Philippians 4.15. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. Now, verse 15 is saying that, in a sense, uh, pejoratively, meaning that it's kind of a shame that no other church financially supported the Apostle Paul in the preaching of the gospel. He says, for even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. And he says, not that I seek the gift itself, He says, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. In other words, what he's saying is that when the minister is financially supported to the degree that he is freed to do the work of the ministry, the aim of all of that is the edification of the church itself. It's the building up of the body of Christ and the fruit that will abound to their account. That's really the goal. That's the aim of it all all. It's never for money. Whether it's it's for extravagance or not, uh, you could be making a little bit of money in the ministry and be greedy, and that wouldn't be any benefit to you either. Uh, No, the minister has to hold money with an open hand. In a sense, it has to be inconsequential uh, to you. God will provide for me. Uh, You know, I've never ever once worried about money in the ministry uh, my wife would testify to that don't ask her because she would probably reveal how reckless I kinda am with that uh, in the name of faith I just well God will provide maybe I'm not responsible enough financially you know my wife is very very uh, financially uh, responsible and very prudent in those areas I just I just kinda take a prophetic uh, position on that the Lord will provide <laughs> and always has I've never had to worry about it ever and I'm so utterly grateful. And it's always one of those things that you have to kind of pinch yourself. I can't believe I'm getting paid to do this. It's really true. Really, really true. If you look at, uh, for example, uh, Paul's next point, he, he talks about what the ultimate sort of motivation in ministry is all about it is not for money it is not for what the church can do for you it is not for any monetary gain it's not for any materialistic gain that you can make whatsoever he gets really to the heart of this next look at what he says in verse 6 he says nor did we seek glory from men you see that there so now we're getting really to the to the heart of the issue so this brings us to our third point ministering with principle seeks to please god alone. How do you know your ministry is a ministry of principle? Well, number one, do what you do for God alone. I mean, this is so important, right? Um, This passage reveals, like I said, a series of denials. And this is yet another one. Now Paul is saying that he rejects the notion that he was a flatterer. He rejects the notion that he was greedy. And now he rejects the notion that he did what he did in order to receive glory from men. And again, this is precisely what the false teachers would do. This is exactly why they would flatter. This is exactly why they would try to get a gain a following and a movement and a platform. It was all a cloak to be made much of. I think this is an incredibly important warning for our evangelical scene today. When we have so much opportunity, and this is talking to a guy who made a film that is going all over the world where people are seeing my image and hearing my voice, but this is a warning to every minister in the modern era, just like in the ancient era, be very careful with the issue of fame and notoriety and influence and prestige and platform. I tried to get my first book published. I met with a publisher. Phil Johnson uh, graciously set up a, uh, a meeting with a big publishing house. I was totally intimidated. I'm like, I don't think I'm professional enough for these people. Anyway, there I am sitting down, and they told me, you don't have a big enough platform. I was like, what? I thought we were here to talk about the substance of my manuscript. I don't care about a platform. Robert Reese knows I don't care about a platform because <laughs> I don't really <laughs> keep up my blog or website or anything like that. But but in this age of social media and Facebook and Twitter and all the other stuff that's out there, if the whole goal of it is to get as known as possible, as quickly as possible, and garnish a following as possible, I mean, I'm sorry, I don't like ministries, that the ministry is the guy's name. You know, Paul Jones Ministry. I hope that's not a real person. But you know what I mean. I mean, I could never have Emilio Ramos's ministry. What? I just can't do it, and I don't want my face, you know, really out there for that at all. I mean, do don't, don't get me wrong. I think media, technology, all of these things should be and can be a great blessing to spread the gospel. You know that recently I was at the Shepherds Conference. I had a gentleman who came up to me and said, "Hey." Pastor Emilio, you don't know me. I don't know you. I just want to let you know we are taking Unpopular, the movie, and we are spreading it all over the Czech Republic right now. And I had another gentleman do the same thing from China. And so I was like, praise God. You know? I almost felt like, I wish I never met you. I just wish that would just go on and that that would happen even without me knowing. I'll find out in heaven what went down. But we have to have this determination That our ministry is to please God alone. Oh, Jesus may have the strongest exposition of this. Turn to Matthew chapter 6. Because Jesus has already elucidated all of this for us in renouncing an entire uh, system, uh, uh, an entire institution that was built on self-righteous, man-centered, aristocratic Principles, namely the scribes and Pharisees, and Jesus says in Matthew six one, "Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them." Let's stop there for a second. Aren't I guilty of that by default? I mean, I have to get up before men. I have to stand up. If you're going to open air preach, you need to stand up before men, and. Speak the righteous gospel and preaching the gospel is a righteous deed. So why don't you qualify for that? That's not the dynamic. The dynamic is is that the Pharisees would go literally into the street corners and they would bring their personal, heartfelt, devotional life and publicize it and see how much I'm praying, see how much I'm fasting, see how much I'm giving. Those things that should have been secret, they made it public, in order to try to impress people. So he says, Otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, you have, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So that your giving will be in secret. That's the key, folks. Circle that in your Bibles, by the way, if you write in your Bibles, unlike myself. But if you do, circle that. Make a mental note. Write it down and meditate on that later. Because that is the key. In secret. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. When you pray, do not... Uh, Do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. They sound as loud as that baby. (laughs) Listen to me pray, crying out with their voice to be heard so that their, their inner piety will come out. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. That's precisely what's wrong with being a man pleaser. It's false from beginning to end. It begins with a false ambition and it results in a false and shallow reward. This is all about the secret place. When Paul says we did not come to receive glory from man, what he's saying is that he doesn't need the praise of man to to incentivize his ministry. doesn't matter who knows, who sees and all that matters is that God sees. God knows. He knows all of the secret motives of the heart, and that's why Paul repeatedly, repeatedly talks about doing everything that he does before God, he says, in Christ. Everything he talks about he does it so that he would gain God's approval and no one else's. Here, turn with me to 2 Corinthians. Uh, 2 Corinthians just to read to you a couple of verses that are just... Nuclear strength for pastoral ministry. Nuclear strength for pastoral ministry. Verse 9, 2 Corinthians 5 9. Therefore, we also have as our ambition to have a big church. We chuckle, but let me tell you, brothers and sisters, pastoral idolatry is very real. Very real. I mean, why is it that at pastor's conferences when I sit with another pastor, and I'm guilty of this too, almost our first question is always, how big is your church? Instead of saying, how's your prayer life? How, In the context of everything that you do as a pastor, tell me, how do you maintain a devotional life with Christ? How about our first question be, do you know how to distinguish between ministry and communion with God? Why is it always, how big is your church? Or what are you guys doing? Or what's going on? What programs do you have in your church? Now, look, look at Paul's ambition. He says, we have as our ambition, whether home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. That's the deepest motive of all pastoral ministry turn over to chapter 10 chapter 10 this is crucial as well chapter 10 last verse verse 18 for it is not he who commends himself that is approved but he whom the lord commends you see to covet the approval of man can be sinful to covet the approval of God is worship, because that is the true motivation for all true ministry. To see this, this idea that what you do, you do for God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, whatever you do, eat, drink, whatever you do, you do for the glory of God. You do it for His approval, for His sake, for His glory, not your own. This is such a deep principle that it even touches on salvation. Look at Romans chapter 2 verse 28, or I could just read it for you. Romans 2 28 says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. In other words, it's not about external conformity to an external standard in the law. It is not that. It is the heart. It is the spirit. And when that happens, your praise is not from men, but from God. And when that is true, that our deepest ambition is to receive the praise of God alone, then that is evidence, according to Paul, of regeneration. It is the carnal religious hypocrite that does religious things so that men will see and think that he or she is spiritual. But it's the person who is contrite, broken of heart, who does business with God in the secret place where no one sees, that's the person whose praise comes from God. And that's the only praise that they even care about. It is so liberating to find people in ministry, and even as a pastor, when members in our church, members in any church, when they have that priority straight. are not trying to impress you, they're not trying to impress the pastor, they're not trying to impress other people with their gifts and their talents. But they are resigned to the sovereignty of God. Let God Decide your legacy. Let God do what He will with your gifts. You just serve Him. That's none of your business. You just follow Him and let Him direct your steps. Last thing, ministering with principle makes proper use of God given authority. If you go back to the text there in Thessalonians, you'll see this because He says, We did not seek glory from men either from you or from others. So no one universally, no no glory sought from anyone. He says, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. Now, for those of you that really want to do some deep exegetical work, uh, I challenge you, especially if you have any working knowledge of Greek. That phrase, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority, that is a very Tricky exegetical phrase. Uh, it was wonderful, very delightful uh, to sit there and to look at that Greek text and to not know what to do with it for like an hour. <laughs> because it's hard. As a matter of fact, the, the sentence begins with the word dunamenoi, which means ability. If you look at your uh, translations, please. Does anybody have the word ability in your translation? I don't think so. He so says they don't know how to translate this because it's literally, he says something like ability to be wait to be in weight as Christ's apostles. What? That makes no sense. That's right. That's why your English Bible and my English Bible is a translation and interpretation of this Greek phrase because it's difficult and it means something like... That what Paul is saying is that as an apostle of Jesus Christ, he and his co-workers could have come with nothing but authority, pushing their weight around, making demands. I think that's what the King James says. Even forcing the church to bear their burden. But he decided rather to deal with these young converts in such a way that what would be magnified is not his authority but his gentleness amazing this is the apostle paul saying i could have come to thessalonica i am an apostle of the lord jesus christ do you know what that means that means i have the signs of an apostle you're talking to a minister of christ who has performed radical miracles he has you know he has risen the dead he has healed the sick he has you know given sight to the blind as it were he has, he has done miracles and the power of God has flowed from him. And guess what? 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 47. If anybody is in doubt as to the things that we write, know that the things that we say are the commands of the Lord. You think Paul has a little bit of authority under there? And yet he sets it aside. So that what's magnified to these young converts is his motherly love and compassion for these young believers. Oh, what an example the Apostle Paul is to so many famous preachers and theologians in the Christian church today that you can't even approach in some churches, in some conferences Their entourage won't even let you near them. And I'm saying, where's the motherly humility? You can tell I'm exercised about this because we are slaves, according to the Bible. The greatest among you is your servant. And so I have a few brothers that I really esteem, and they probably don't even know why I esteem them. I esteem them not because they're so famous or whatever. I esteem them because in the conversation that I had with them, I saw authentic humility. I want to get close to a pastor like that. I want to know a pastor like that. I want to know why he's like that. I want to know why he doesn't, although he's famous, and if I said some names, you would all know the names, but aside from that, he is totally willing to get down and dirty with the people. Finally, some authenticity, man. I don't care about celebrity Christianity. I mean, look at Paul's words. Just jump down. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, the Lord is his own interpreter. Look at verse 7. We proved to be gentle among you as nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having so fond an affection for you. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our lives because you had become very dear to us. That's exactly what he said in 1 Timothy, isn't it? The goal of our instruction is love. Why? Because you had become very dear to us. The Thessalonians got it all together? Absolutely not. Just hold on. Let's go a couple more chapters. You'll find that out. This is not a perfect church. This is not a church that did everything right. This is not a church full of members that were the most mature in all of Rome. No. It's just that Paul had such a love and such a, a fatherly motherly affection for the saints of God. He loved the church. You know why Paul was up at night? He lost sleep. He suffered. I mean, I'd like to to be able to do a biopsy on the body of the Apostle Paul right at death or right before. Let's say we could rush him to the doctor before he died. I'd like to see what condition his body was in before he died what kind of ulcers he had what kind of problems he had neurologically what kind of what kind of sleep problems he had because he was so worried for the church how the church has stressed him out i like to see how pummeled he really was well, he gives a picture in second corinthians 11 that's not pretty He goes through the whole litany of his sufferings, and you know where I'm going. At the very end there, I think it's about verse 27 when he talks about, and then on top of all of these things, my great concern for all the churches. That's what his stress really was. So I have a question for you, beloved. I'm going to flip the tables here for a second. In light of all these principles the Apostle Paul gives, how does the church respond You're not a pastor. Maybe you're sitting there thinking that to yourself. I'm not a pastor. How do I apply this to myself? Let me give you three ways that you can do this quickly. Number one, you can respond by adopting Paul's attitudes. Look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 9, or I can read it to you. The things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me... Like The things that he's talking about here in Thessalonians of ministering with with these principles in mind of of, of seeking God's glory only, of being indifferent to money, of being truthful in his speech. Those characteristics, those moral uh, traits, he says, what you have seen and heard in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So you can imitate whatever is godly in your leaders. Secondly, you should reciprocate the same level of faithfulness that is being shown to you and demanded of you by God. Who I wrote that down and I forced myself to read it to you because that's what you need to hear. Not because it's easy to say. You should reciprocate in all of these ways, in the ways that you are led, that you are shepherded, that you are taught, that you are edified. The church can be a blessing to their pastors by encouraging them and especially by praying for them. But listen closely now. If your pastor is an expositional preacher, hopefully I qualify, you should be an expositional hearer. Do you know how to listen to a sermon properly? Do you struggle with wandering thoughts? Do you, do you get done with the sermon in Jesus' name, amen, and you walk out the door and you don't have the faintest idea what you just heard? You couldn't repeat the three points of the sermon To your children. That's a problem. Those that should. Should. And those those that can should. Those that can't shouldn't. If you can. Follow me. With mental notes in your mind. Boy you're a sharp cookie. First of all. Second of all. If you can do that. Fine. But if you can't. And if you can't repeat. The point of the sermon. To your children. At the table. Or to your spouse. Then you need to be writing it down. Spurgeon said, why should God tell you anything if you won't even write it down? I know what he's saying. Because the heartache of any pastor is that his labor is not wasted, is that his points are not squandered, is that the truths that he's preaching are imbibed and internalized, and they are taken seriously. That's what we want. You can also reciprocate this by the way that you prepare yourself for this act of preaching, this phenomenon of preaching. Because, beloved, as one man put it, preaching is the act where God and man meet. In other words, through the preaching of the Word of God, you are to be encountering God. And you'll do that when you prepare your soul, when you make preparations, when you minimize distractions, and when you are zealous enough to press in and engage in what is being preached and what is being taught, even if your pastor is not the most magnetic and exciting and, and you know, what preacher. It takes grace to be a church member, meaning you got to give me grace. Hallelujah. Third, like Paul, our interaction with the church, all of our gifts, our ministry, our fellowship, all of these things are to be vertically oriented first. In other words, when you walk through the halls of this church, you are having a vertical orientation with God. You are communing vertically before you go horizontally. In other words, you need to be preparing yourself as you enter the assembly The sheep who bring the greatest joy to their shepherds are the ones who are following the chief shepherd first and seek to please him alone. Ministry is about trust, brothers and sisters. When you sign up, when our sister came up here to join our church, little did she know what she was in for. No, I'm just joking. It is a trust relationship. There's no ball and chain. This is not Hotel California. Can't leave, but you can, you know, you can't leave. But how does it go? I don't even want to know that song. Sorry I even put that song in your mind. My wife will get it on me for that later. Don't you ever use a secular song as a point for your sermon. It's a holy woman right there. You know what I mean? There's a level of trust that comes with ministry. We trust you that when we make an announcement that the church is doing something, that you are eager to do it. And therefore, we should be prepared for the Lord's Supper. We should be prepared for church. Don't come in here talking about you were up late at night and that's why you're falling asleep in the pew. You know what that is? That is a neglect of your soul. Who cares what the pastor thinks? It's a neglect of your soul. And so make... Preparations. Get things in order. Do what you have to do with the kids to be ready for the Word of God. Because, as Paul says, they are commendable, the Thessalonians, because they received the Word of God as for what it really is. It's the Word of God. It's not the Word of man. We're here to hear from God, not from Pastor Emilio so much. I'm just a contour. I'm a vessel. I'm nothing more than a tool. I'm a mouthpiece. And if you have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church, then you will know that I, I, I can with all authority say that from the Bible, to, through me, to you, you are hearing God. There is a prophetic unction with preaching, and we should be sifting through the preacher's message to hear, what, what's going to land on me? What? What insight is He going to give me? How can I apply this to myself? Where is God trying to put His thumb on something in my life? So God knows. I leave you with Paul's words there that I didn't make much of in this sermon. Did you, did you notice the solemn appeal that he makes? We didn't do this. We didn't do that. No greed. No flattery. God is witness. God knows why we are not preparing ourselves. God knows why we are shedding so little sweat in evangelism and in serving in the local church. God knows why we are not attending Sunday school and why we're not taking our children to Sunday school to hear Miss Amy teach incredible theology to the uh, 12 and under, God knows the truth of that. And so here's a question I have for you. How do we give God so much? This is what God requires. How do we make such selfless returns from a pure heart to God? John Calvin helps us answer that. I dug up this quote. It's magnificent. It's from his institutes. And I think he's helpful here. Listen to what Calvin says. This is how we can serve the Lord, to put it plainly. He says, "I call piety, that reverence joined with the love of God, with which the knowledge of His benefits induces. for until men recognize that they owe everything to God, that they are nourished by His fatherly care, that He is the author of their every good, that they should seek nothing beyond Him." they will never yield Him willing service. He says, nay, unless they establish their complete happiness in Him, they will never give themselves truly and sincerely to Him. And so I leave you with not only Calvin's words, but with Paul's words. God is witness. Let's pray. Father, high accountability in the church. And you call us to lay our hearts open before you. As the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians, our hearts are open wide to you, open also to us. So that there can be that healthy back and forth, that reciprocation, that over and under dynamic that makes for a healthy church. Would you strengthen your people? God, we all need what Calvin just said. We all need to see you as the source of our every good. We all need to see that we owe you everything. We owe you our very breath. And not until we see ourselves in that light will we offer willing service to you. And so, oh God, we will never master these things. We will never get all these things perfect. And so, Father, to the degree that your grace your spirit can strengthen us to do this. Work in our hearts, oh God, by faith. In Jesus' name we pray.